afternoon, my friends. Happy Wednesday. The doctor is in the house. Welcome back to another episode of To Your Health with Dr. G. Each week, of course, bringing the thunder without a doubt. And I'm so excited to be here today because we're going to have some really detailed, intimate talking. You know, there's times when it come up when we just have to talk about an issue. You know, in the, in, the, in the musical Hamilton, they say, if you stand for nothing, what are you going to fall for? And so I love that line because at some point in, in life, we have to talk about pertinent issues. We have to put literally our, our foot in the sand, draw that line, and talk about things that are important. You know, we've done a lot of shows here on Tear Up with Dr. G with fitness and nutrition and exercise and obesity and a lot of disease states, but we have to have proper conversations about some serious issues. And today's show is no different. The topic of today's show is, did we forget about teen alcohol use? So you're joining me here live on Facebook. We're here at Intellectual Radio Studios. Check me out on my website at www.drmarkgomez.com. And so really, we're here today to talk about something that needs to be spoken about. Teen alcohol use has been around for seemingly forever, but we don't talk about it as much because right now we're inundated with a vaping epidemic. We're inundated with marijuana. But these issues haven't gone away. But in society, if it's not a hot button issue and we're not talking about it, the reality is we have to have these pertinent conversations. Anything that affects our well-being, our functioning, we have to talk about it. Remember, as you have success with your health, you're more than likely to have success in your life. So welcome back. My name is Dr. Mark Gomez. I'm a board-certified internal medicine physician. I practice at an Edward Hospital in Naperville. I'm also a member of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. And really the reality of things today is that our daily lifestyle choices matter more than most of us think. So we're going to talk about it. And today's focus, it's really out there for you, out there, parents that are out there listening to our show, grandparents, anybody that's taking care of a loved one who's a teen, a youth or even youth that are out there right now, your coaches, teachers, this show's for you too. What we're going to do today is we're going to talk about the, the, the severity, the burden of teenage drinking, but hopefully talk about some practical solutions. I have a great guest today. He and I have been friends for a long time, but he's really going to speak volumes on the, the really the much needed, the action steps, the, 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 the intimate steps that we need to take right now to impart that long lasting change. We're going to talk a little bit about, about, about really some of the why this happens, but not only just why it happens, how it happens, how teens may get hooked on something like this with addiction, but really we're making sure at the end of the day that everybody has the opportunity. We talk a lot about access and equity in our health and our well-being. We want people that are out there that, that, that may not have been thinking about this topic, I want you to start thinking about this topic. You know, as an adult, as a parent myself, I have little kids, but I'm thinking about also what's going to happen 5, 10, 15 years down the road when they are teenagers and young people, and what are the pressures that they're going to face from society? What are the pressures that they're going to face from peer pressure? What are the pressures they're going to face by just growing up and trying to mature as an adult and hopefully a productive citizen in this country and in this lifetime? But we've got to talk about some of the root causes on why things are happening. So I love it. You're going to meet my guest in just a moment. I've got to hit you with a quick disclaimer. The content of Tear Up with Dr. G is for informational and entertainment purposes only, and that the content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, and or treatment. Further details can be found at www.toyourhealthwithdrg.com slash disclaimer. So we're here today talking about, did we forget about teen alcohol use? At the end of the day, this show has always been about building trust and delivering truth. And we want to make sure we set the record straight. You guys are going to definitely hear our myths versus facts. i got a special one made for this week. 
but really the conversation is going to be intimate. We're talking about concrete action steps, ways to identify, and so how do we best prevent, screen, treat this nationwide health epidemic, this health concern. So I want to introduce my guest today. He and I go way back, and I got to tell you the story how we first met. Uh, my guest, Todd, I think I'm going to read you his credentials in just a second. He and I met actually through the hospital. He actually gave a lecture to the physicians at Edward Hospital a number of years ago about stress. And I was just really captivated about stress and burnout. Uh, and, and Todd really just broke it down in very applicable terms to the physicians. And I just had this moment, this, this very, I became very introspective at that moment. It was like, oh my gosh, I think I am going down that pathway of being, feeling overwhelmed and overburdened. And that may affect my ability to not only care for my patients, but also to be, to care for myself and be a great husband and a great father. And so we've connected ever since. And so Todd's been on the show before a couple times, talking about some great topics. You can find those all on my website, www.drmarkcomas.com. So I want to introduce my great friend and colleague expert, Mr. Todd Fink. Todd is a certified alcohol and drug counselor at Linden Oaks. He's a behavioral health uh, expert. He's an artist. He's a speaker. Check him out. A couple websites I want to reference because I want you guys to check him out because he's really legit in what he does. Check him out, www.eehealth.org from the Edward uh, Linden Oaks Behavioral Health Component. He's also, you can check him out, find him out at www.michaeltoddfink.com. You can also find him at www.thegivingtreeband.com. Todd, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good <laughs> hey, to see you again, hey, Dr. Chief. It's so awesome to have you here. I'm so excited that we're able to talk about such a pertinent topic. You know, um, I want to start off by just tell us about some of your credentials and tell us a little bit about what does this theme today mean to you? Let's talk about the opportunity that's there for the taking. Well, I've been, believe it or not, I've been working for Linden Oaks for 19 years in some capacity, uh, sometimes less when I'm touring with the band or doing other work. But... When, when you reminded me of how we met, I was thinking how important it was to share that with the rest of our team in healthcare because there's no way I would have been able to work in healthcare for 19 <laughs> years if I didn't have some of those self-care strategies. And so I feel very motivated to share that with anyone in the helping profession. But several years ago, I also started to focus a little bit more on drugs and alcohol. It was at the request of one of my, my colleagues and supervisors and I thought, you know, this is an area that I would like to know more about. I, I think one of the reasons that I was receptive to that encouragement was because in years past, I would sometimes end up working with teens in our chemical dependency track. And somehow I got the sense that throughout different healthcare systems, that that's the group that people don't want to work with. Well, in my mind, when I hear that, especially when, when it comes to kindness or compassion, that's where my heart immediately goes the most. And I found in my early experiences in focus groups or group therapy sessions that I got a lot out of those sessions. I found the, that patient demographic to be really fascinating, really deep thinkers. Uh, it just... There was a lot for me to learn about what's behind that problem. And I think I, I found that I grew as much as, uh, as maybe they were hoping to in, in treatment. And so then I got into this, uh, this track as well. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Todd, for coming back on the show. You know, it's interesting when you talk about the growth. And even when we met years ago at that, at that lecture, I mean, it was like faded. It was fate. I mean, literally, it was the universe talking that, that a group of physicians that are concerned about some issues got together to coalesce and really with you guiding us 
for a lot of us, uh, and certainly for me personally, it put me on another track. So I certainly thank you from the bottom of my heart on that one. And I share that, that kind of story with my wife, Tiffany, and she knows a lot of things that we've, 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 we've gone through. Uh, and again, we all just want to be better people. But right. I don't want to forget, and I think for me as a physician, and there's a lot of parents that are out there, you know, we, we understand caring, we understand giving, uh, because many of us, a lot of us are givers. We, we don't ask for anything in return. That's just some of our nature. Uh, but a lot of times we maybe set ourselves up for some, some self-harm if we neglect certain needs that we have for ourselves, that self-care aspect, because we're just saying, well, if I do something for me, it's selfish. You know, what's your take on that one? Well, I don't think people in the helping professions realize how unnatural our work can actually be. It's not natural to just have a, a one-way nurturing dynamic as opposed to some other fields where like I, I run some businesses as well and maybe I take somebody out to dinner and we talk about opportunities and then they take me out to dinner. Uh, but in healthcare and maybe in say police work or firefighting and other first responders and also in education, we are listening to problems and we are responding to the needs of others and it's not appropriate for that to be reciprocated which is why we we get into the field because we want to help but all of that becomes secondary traumatic stress and it wasn't until more recently that we recognized that it actually exists in other fields as well we first realized yeah, people in healthcare listening to the pain and treating pain are probably going to take some of that on through our mirror neurons our cells are firing when we're hearing these stories of trauma or pain or addiction, and we feel it on some level just because we're empathic humans. Uh, but now we're realizing, you know what, teachers are going to face this too. Coaches, like you mentioned, and uh, anyone that is providing a service to the community. Excellent. It doesn't just come up in the hospital or in the office. You're, you're right, and I think this is the, the real thing, and, and when we rope this into today's conversation about teen alcohol use, um, Again, we're not just having this conversation, and I know for me, being very introspective and reflective on things, you know, there's a lot of opportunities that are out there, and we may not take advantage of that. As I know I can do better as a clinician, I know I can do better at screening young people um, for alcohol use and or abuse, um, but sometimes the, the nature of the insurance game and you only have a certain amount of time with people, those models are not there to have these kind of intimate discussions because you're just trying to make sure that, all right, I got to do this checkbox, this checkbox, this checkbox, because me as a clinician, uh, my payers, the insurance companies that are saying, all right, you need to do this and that and that and that to get reimbursed. But then, you know, a patient on the other end, you may have missed that opportunity to bring that up because maybe they want to say something, but they don't want to be judged. So they don't say it at all. And then you have both have two barriers right there and you've made no progress. Let's start right there. How do you start talking about, how do we start breaking down this wall? And actually, maybe ask you a, a bigger step back. How big is the teen drinking problem? How big of an issue is this? And then we can talk about how we maybe start chipping away at some of the barriers that are out there to have these kind of discussions. Well, it's still a big problem. I think we maybe forget about it to some extent because we're, we're dealing with a very complicated health picture in the 21st century. And, you know, we have vaping epidemic now, like you mentioned, and the opioid epidemic isn't just adults, but sometimes families are losing their, their teens to some kind of opioid addiction and they didn't even know. So I think we sometimes put alcohol again on the back burner because of the trajectory of opioid addiction. I mean, it can lead to death in a very short amount of time where alcohol tends to have a, a little bit more of an of a 
unfolding process over sometimes decades, but it's not less of a problem or it's not less harmful in the big picture. And we're looking at underage drinking accounting for about 11% of the total consumption of alcohol in America. You combine that with 70% of consumption is addiction, and you're looking at maybe like um, 10 to 20% is what we might call safe drinking, but that you know could be discussed more too. So you have a model of alcohol in America which is really based on poor health. So when you hear messages about remember to drink responsibly, if people really did, if adults really did drink responsibly, they would lose 70% of, of the business. So that 30% is very high and it, and it increases across the teenage years. It goes from like maybe a little less than 2% right before high school up to 30% of students have had at least one drink in the last month. Yeah, and it's interesting because I, I, we can, I mean, you and I are old enough to remember our high school days. Yeah. And, and we're not naive that there to, to say that there wasn't alcohol around. And I still remember as a freshman, the first part I went to as a freshman uh, at somebody's house where the parents were gone, uh, a whole bunch of us freshmen were there, and there was alcohol there. Uh, and, and, and you could see that the exposure for 14 or 15-year-olds was there for the taking. And, and, and so it's so pervasive, but it's so accessible. You know, you know I think about alcohol is very, very easy to gain access to. Let me ask you this question. You know, we, we, try to, we try to put laws. I mean, we know that, everybody knows that the legal age in this country to drink alcohol is 21. And if you get caught with alcohol, uh, uh, you know, certainly there are some, some consequences that are related to that. Uh, but, but how do we start having some more broader discussion, remember more intimate discussions to say, how do we make this not as easy, uh, easy access as we think again? I mean, everybody can relate to a high school party where they think they oh, yeah. saw something, but yeah. the access is there. How do we... How do you put up some more barriers to make it more difficult to, to obtain something like this? Well, I, one of them is boredom. Many parents with teens probably hear their kids saying, I'm bored, I have nothing to do there. And in, in my experience growing up in high school, we, we lived in a more rural community. And so drinking was sort of a solution to boredom. And yeah, just like you said, it, it was very prevalent and very easy, very easy to yes. access. But I want, to, I want to mention something Please. to what you said, and that's that the primacy effect matters a lot here, meaning our initial experiences with anything really take root in the brain. And for most people, especially with addiction later on, those initial experiences are very positive. I think something like 96% of adolescents who are drinking didn't have to, don't have to pay for it They're, because it's coming from somewhere in the family or somebody sharing it, right? But... But that means something. That means, okay, this is getting associated with, it's not expensive. There's no cost involved to this. Rarely do people have those kind of consequences in the beginning. Those consequences tend to come later on, right? But it's hard to undo our uh, first impressions. It's just like with relationships. If your first impression is somebody was rude to me, even if they're the sweetest person in the world for the rest of your life, you still kind of have it in your mind. Yeah, but that's a rude person. You know, I think about how as, you know, when we were growing up again, we're not far removed from that. I mean, we're removed from our teenage years, but, but you can think like, you know, I would argue that part of the natural growth of development is when you do become a teen, you know, you do want to test a little boundaries. You want to, I think maybe it's a little bit of a normal part of things. You want to uh, learn more about yourself. Of course, there's a lot of pressures in this 20, uh, 21st century uh, than we had in the 20th century when you and I were teenagers. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, 
it's just so much more with digital media and social media and things like that. But I always feel like, even though that that, that opportunity is there, you know, I, I still think like as a parent, you know, I remember my parents saying, "Hey, this is right or wrong." But but at the same time, you know, you're trying to balance. It. As you as a as a teen, you want to explore a little bit more. But maybe just the naivety of being a teen may affect your ability to really understand the true risks. Yeah. What's your, what's your take, on, take on that? Well, it's really important, I think, for parents to have conversations with their teens before they start drinking. Now, there's plenty of research that shows if you have this conversation about the risk, the dangers, not so much about instilling fear in them or judging them, but just having conversations in the context of the meaning of life, when that can come up before a person starts drinking, all the research shows that there's going to be much better outcomes. That doesn't mean that if your, your teen has already started drinking, don't have that conversation, you still want to have that conversation. But there's three things going on here that, that play a role in this. And, and many parents will say, I don't have any influence anymore. Like We can't compete with the social media influence and their peer influence. But but the current research is showing that parents still do have a significant amount of influence. There's three things here. The beliefs of the parents, the beliefs of the peers, and the beliefs of society. But it's not just what the attitude the parents have, what they think their beliefs are. It's what your child's perception is of your beliefs. And there's often a pretty wide gap that you'll find in family therapy between what a parent thinks they're communicating to a child. So let me just give you an example. So yeah, let's say... Do. Let's say a parent is drinking responsibly and has, has a couple beers out to eat and then thinks, okay, I'm going to wait two hours so I can show my teenage children that it's not good to drink and drive. That is maybe the attitude of the parent. That is the intention. Right? But, but it is possible that the, the teen is saying, okay, my parents drink and drive. Yeah, and, you know? and I've got an accident, they're fine. Right. Yeah. Unless that conversation happens. Or... I'm drinking as a parent, and then I, I offer the keys to my 17-year-old or 18-year-old. You know, you drive. I've had a few drinks. It's safe. So I'm teaching my child, don't drink and drive. And that that's maybe a, a good intention, right? But the, it's possible that the teen is seeing that as, um, yeah, my my dad drinks until he can't drive anymore. <laughs> you know? Well, actually, so, I mean, you talk about the perception, and, and I think for as a challenge of, of, of me, certainly as a physician, you know, I always try to, you know, you mentioned that, that we are, um, a lot of us are naturally empathic. Uh, and you want to put yourself in somebody's shoes. Uh, but sometimes it's hard to walk in that person's shoes because we really, really don't know. I want to ask you this question. You know, with this, thinking back on kind of like the, the social media age, again, what is now, I mean, drinking was there when we were in high school. It's still pervasive now. Uh, but let's talk about loneliness. Uh, because we don't really, you know, if, 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 if the perceptions are off. And I'm thinking one thing and my child's thinking another thing. You know, how do we bridge that gap? But how do I know that person's not lonely? And maybe that's why they're maybe blocking or throwing up barriers on me as if I'm a, I'm a parent trying to communicate effectively. Let's talk about the, the, the influence of loneliness when it comes to this topic. It's a major factor, and it's complicating what we just thought of as simply peer pressure in the past. Now, I mentioned boredom. I think that was really relevant in the 20th century. It's still relevant in the 21st century. But... The, the new technology is probably contributing to disconnection. So no amount of likes and follows and all that can really substitute for the oxytocin that's released when you have appropriate physical connection and hugs and um, holding hands and, and so on. And kids today just aren't getting that. I had a focus group yesterday with a group of 
teenagers and I said, do you guys struggle with loneliness? And they just like, yes, that's us. And so they're explaining to me, and when you create this kind of safety and conversation, they, they're really ready to open up. Now, I'm not a, I'm not a parent of teens, so I, I, I can't say that it's, I mean, I think I have an advantage coming, know, them knowing, like, I'm not going to live with you after yeah. this, so I can open up a little bit. And I can sympathize with parents yes. in that way. But when you have these conversations, they'll say, you know, whether it's vaping or alcohol, this is a card to the conversation. This is a way to get through the phones to people, to actually have the, the connection that they're craving. I have teachers tell me, like, for the first time in their teaching career, they can walk out of the classroom to go take care of something, and they don't have to worry about managing the room. Because the minute they step out, everyone's just going to look down into their hand, into their wow, phone. That's so because true. phones are now permitted in the classroom. They, many schools are getting away from putting them locked up because it's just not real life. You know? So teacher leaves. and So what, what I'm getting at is they're lonely. And it, it's not intuitive for us to realize that. We, we're continuously thinking about our elderly, and I think that's important. But the research is showing the elderly are actually the least lonely age demographic in America, and it works backwards for, from there. iGen, or Generation Z, or the teens, they're the loneliest age group in America, which means somehow there's been a shift that's building a paradigm of psychosocial distance that's contributing to mental illness, social anxiety, school avoidance, and addiction. And so unless we bring all these pieces together, we're not really going to understand how to care for our kids and how to mitigate these uh, these health concerns. You know, it's, it's interesting. I want to piggyback on what you said about certainly the elderly. Uh, the perception, of course, the common perception that the elderly may be the may, may be the loneliness, especially when it's time of end of life care. And you know, the research I agree with you. The research, at least in, in lifestyle medicine, will say if somebody is lonely, they are three more times three times more likely to die an earlier death. Uh, and that was put up by, uh, I believe, Dean Ornish uh, years ago in his studies. But we think that in the, in the, in the concept, that, that, that cohort of the elderly, you know, I don't really think about it that much in the, in the youth, but we need to have this kind of conversation. Uh, you know, you said the human touch factor, we've lost that. And I know as a clinician, that's one of the challenges that I have in, in, in the way I practice is I want to have more touch points with people to hopefully, if there's any barriers that are up there, we can break them down little by little and get deeper into the conversation. Mm -hmm. But because of the way how the model's set up right now, the disease model, uh, and people can identify that listen to the show right now, your doc may only have 10, 15 minutes with you. It's hard, and if you're a young person, you know, 10, 15 minutes kind of thing. But you don't have that time to get the human touch. And then if you want to have the human touch, it's hard to bring that person back into that model fast without going siloed and pushing them out elsewhere. What do you, what's your take on well, like, how we're doing this? Yeah. The specialization complicates this picture because patients can feel that too. I know my doctor only has a few minutes, so I don't think it makes sense to bring up my loneliness, you know, or to bring up anything related to my lifestyle. And that's unfortunate. And so people aren't sure which conversations they can have where. And unfortunately, that's not good because the PCPs are usually the ones who can connect the most uh, to do the most screening for, for teens. They may not get past that to, to, uh, to other kinds of care, to outpatient programming and, so, and stuff like that for, for addiction. So it, it is a challenge. And the lonely, uh, loneliness picture is only getting worse. And 
if it's true, I mean, it is true what you said about premature death. It's also true that it's more harmful than smoking 15 cigarettes per day. Mm. Wow. So when you think about that, there's a, a long, I mean, there's a big discrepancy here. So you can understand why a child or a teen is going to turn to something like vaping or alcohol if it solves that problem for them. That fills that void of that connection. Right. So let me ask you this. How are we, what, what do we need to do? Let's, let's keep this conversation going. What do we need to do to, to restore that human connection? That I mean, what are we doing now to set up systems to prevent loneliness, and especially that's going to lead a child down this pathway to substance abuse, a.k.a. drinking? As families, as communities, and as a society, we have to build resources for connection. I, I talked to a group of teens the other day who said that they have lots of contacts, but very few people know them well. Also, the college students tell me quite frequently they've had many, many sexual partners, but they have yet to hold somebody's hand. And so there, there is some real challenges here to, to support our young people with building deeper, meaningful relationships. I don't think there's any uh, one solution here, but the conversations need to be had. And we also have to reduce the stigma of things like loneliness. Well, yeah, we have to be able to talk about that. You know, essentially when you were on my show last time, we talked about, um, especially men, when we did the show, it was called uh, Hashtag in the Stigma. We were talking about men's yeah. health and the fact that men need better ways, more constructive ways to deal with their negative emotions. Let me ask you this question. When, when, when a child's going through this, how do we give them the support to deal with their emotions in a constructive manner. How do we set that up? Well, so the, I mean, that's what we try to do in treatment, is we try mm -hmm. to give them more coping skills. Another part of this is trauma. One out of two children will experience some kind of trauma, or actually half of all children right now have wow. some kind of trauma, traumatic experience. And we find that 70% of all the patients that we treat with substance use disorders report some kind of trauma. So you want to be asking the con the kind of questions that lead to patients opening up about what is the pain that they're feeling? What is the pain that the alcohol or vaping or some other drug is masking? And then talk about ways to deal with that, whether it's loneliness, whether it's boredom. I think teens feel really supported in the conversations that I have with them when, when they feel validated about trying to transcend their pain. I mean, that's what getting high does. Or, or maybe it's that they can't focus, because there's a lot of co-occurring disorders, too. It could be depression. could be ADHD. And when I smoke pot, then I don't worry about my test so much, and I can do better, right? But teaching them, well, first accepting them and not judging them for wanting to relieve that tension, but then showing them that there's other ways to do it, healthier ways to do it. And I find that many teenagers are really receptive to that. Which is wonderful that, that there's systems out there. You know, one of the things I said at the beginning is, is talking about having equity uh, in, in access. And, and there's still a lot of work to be done that's out there to help overcome some of these pertinent issues, these pressing issues. Uh, we just don't have all the resources. And we know that mental health uh, in general is underfunded. It needs to be funded more. It doesn't get the, the allure of breast cancer screening, for example, or even some heart disease stuff. But it's serious. And you're right when you're saying that uh, you know, piggyback on what you were saying about the trauma, you know, you may not see the visible thing, you know, and going back to the stigma again, you know, you can tell somebody's got a broken bone that's sticking out of their skin that needs treatment uh, right now, but, but we don't see sometimes the external features. So let me piggyback into this. Mm -hmm. 
Now, the parents out there right now listening to us are a coach or a teacher, and they're looking for signs. Maybe there may be some suspicion that their youth, their young one, their teen may be drinking. Are there any kind of telltale, telltale signs out there that parents should be looking for? Sure. Uh, and, and parents are, are the best people to do this screening, but you can look for mood changes, you can look for irritability, uh, you can look for changes in their social behavior. Are their friends changing? Are the friends that they used to be around, is, is that different now? How is their performance in school? How is their participation and engagement in other activities? But when you're having these questions, you want to be careful not to be trying to get control over your team. So you mentioned independence. Independence is important during this stage of life. And it's not that they have to drink or use something or rebel to gain independence. They just have to take on new challenges. And so the parent needs to realize, uh, and I want to be really supportive of parents, because I think all parents are just doing the best that right. they can. Yeah, right? Absolutely. And, but you want to try to be respectful, non-judgmental, and support them in that independence. So if you're going into a conversation, you're saying, hey, can we have... Can we talk about something? And they say no, and then you go, well, we're going to talk about it anyway. It's probably not going to be a very open conversation. No, wall's gone up, barrier. Right. Yeah. So you want to find ways to respect that and say, okay, well, it's important to me, so maybe we can find another time because I respect how you feel, too. And if you can create just the culture of warmth, the dynamic of warmth, and that's going to happen just by talking about life more. Those conversations aren't happening enough in families because we're all busy. There's an interesting statistic that um, a neuropsychologist, Dr. Mario Martinez, did in the 20th century that showed that families with addiction, parents with addiction, it didn't pass on at the rate that it normally would when the families still had dinner together and had conversation. So there's still something that's, that revolves around connection. And like I've said before, this is about bonding. Human beings need to bond yes. with each other with something. And if we're not bonding with each other or with our families, we'll bond in, in some yeah. other way. We're going to bond in another way mm -hmm. and, and, and this habit that can set somebody up for certainly serious consequences if it's, it's, if it's still sustainable. You know, it's interesting, you said at the beginning, um, uh, uh, you know, millions of people, millions of young people out there are exposed. Well, we already know that it's inundated from society, from um, TVs, movies, the imagery is just pervasive. Uh, are there any ways to make those images? I mean, this this is a more broader question, but we're talking about trying to trying to really impart practical and real change. We have to talk about how can we make these images not so pervasive without knowing that again we can't have the naivete. But how do we make social media influences, TV influences, magazine influences, media uh, movie influences of alcohol? How do we tell people that that is not our youth? That yes, you may see that somebody doing that, but it's not okay to do so. How do we how do we well, tackle that? Most of the marketing and advertising is geared toward kids. Barring the most interesting man in the world, <laughs> almost everybody, <laughs> almost everybody in the commercials are fairly young, like you know, just just adults. Mm -hmm. So that it sends a message to young people like this is fun, and this is going to be. This life is going to be better than sober life. And that's what we're, we're up against, really, with helping kids, is building a life that's more meaningful and that's ultimately more rewarding than being under the influence. And that's a challenge, but it's not impossible. And so 90% of addiction starts in adolescence. And, of course, 
people in the business of, of selling the products know that, and it has to be geared towards young people. They don't need to advertise towards older people because it's unlikely that you will get that kind of business if the person hasn't started yet. And if they've already developed an addiction, well, then you don't need to advertise to them. <laughs> Pretty much. They're already, they're already hooked. You so know. that education has to to be there, and uh, it has to influence policy and so on. You know, it's interesting. Uh, a colleague of ours that we both know, Dr. Aaron Weiner, mm -hmm. um, who is the director of addiction, addiction services over at Linden Oaks uh, Hospital, uh, he always likes to use the phrase, uh, hashtag uh, people over profits versus hashtag profits over people. And to piggyback on what you're saying, it, it's, it's, you're right, the money is there, the advertising is there, they're not marketing, whether it's vaping uh, or CBD, you, you know, you're not marketing any kind of that stuff towards the older demographic. Everybody looks young, hip, people feel connection to that because maybe they're lonely mm -hmm. and it says, it's okay for me to do that. I want to have a good time. I want to feel that void, fill that void. Uh, and then they're going on this pathway. Uh, how do you get that? How do you get the message into people? Because me as an internist, certainly we, uh, I see a lot of disease burden, the, the sequela of chronic disease. And so we'll see alcoholic liver disease. We'll see other kind of issues that happen uh, from, from years and years of alcohol use and abuse. But how do, you, how do you kind of paint the picture in a young person to say, hey, down the road, and you're not, I know you're not thinking 30 years down the road or 40 years down the road, but how do you get somebody young to think long game on this issue versus just thinking about in that moment, I want to have fun, I want to do this, but not knowing the full consequences? Well, I think that's a big challenge because, first of all, our frontal lobe doesn't fully develop until like 26, 27 years old. <laughs> and that's the part of our brain that does long-term planning and executive decision-making. And so when your teen might roll their eyes at you and you're saying, you know, when you're a parent, you'll know what this feels like. They're like, that's a billion years from now. and I can't think of that abstractly. Uh, I, think I think what needs to happen probably is we have to find a way in the here and now to make life meaningful. Not, not necessarily like down the road. It's hard to comprehend those things, you know, that 40 years from now you could get. It doesn't matter if you're lonely today. You know? And suicide is a big part of this. I, th I think it, it may be helpful to, to talk about some of the dangers now, too, because like there's, uh, I, I would say maybe like 80, 90% of suicide, something like that, involves alcohol. Suicide is the second leading cause of death for young people yeah. and then you have like sexual violence sexual assault yeah. that all happens when you're when you're when you uh, mix things with alcohol so 50 to 80 percent of sexual assaults involve alcohol depending on what kind of data you're looking at whether the perpetrator being under the influence um, th that's not to say that it causes sexual assault but it's a risk factor and uh and and so looking at, at some of these concerns helping people recognize that and steering them towards um, better things. I agree. You know, in the preview to this little lead up to the show, I put out a statistic out there by the, by the Centers for Disease Control outside of Atlanta, Georgia, and they put up a statistic. It's an older statistic, but said uh, more than 4,000 deaths, teenage deaths per year happen because of, uh, because of alcohol being a contributing factor. Uh, now, that's deaths. When you look at the number of emergency room visits, for anything that has alcohol as a factor, it's over 100,000. It's actually close to 200,000 visits per year in the ER of things that could have been prevented 
Uh, so we're talking about preventing 200,000, almost 200,000 ER visits per year, wow. and then over 4,000 deaths a year. And you know, no parent should bear that burden uh, of losing a loved one or having a loved one end up in the emergency room with with an undisclosed injury or some some awful injury when that could have been preventable. You know, I think of as a parent myself, I would I would I would have I would have a ton of regret. I would have guilt uh, because why did my kid maybe go down this pathway when I never foresaw them going down that pathway? How do you kind of help parents out there um, come to grips uh, and and have a kind of reality check that their child, you know, if they if they have history of their child drinking, how do they? How can you get them to better understand and cope, but then also turn that into an opportunity? We don't want to turn any tragedy. We don't want any tragedies at all. But where do we get some opportunities to make change out of this whole situation? Again, reducing stigma. So a lot of parents feel shame if their child is struggling in, in one of these ways, whether it's mental illness or, or substance use. And parents are doing the best they can. And sometimes there's single parenthood, and there's limitations there. And I think parents need to be supported. We need to reduce stigma so parents can open themselves up to their own treatment and, uh, and therapy so that they can get resources and tools and that's probably going to be one of the big game changers is reducing stigma. Yeah. We have to, we have to, we have to do better and we must do better. You know, one of the things we, we talk about, I want to talk about more about the parent role and, and quite frankly, I'm just going to be frank, we have to make that time. Um, the saying parents got a parent uh, and we have to make that time and that might be sacrificing other things for the parent out there, it might be sacrificing you know, your chance to do some fitness or maybe some sacrificing the chance for you to do some self-care yourself or to, uh, to focus on personal growth. But, uh, but I implore all my parents out there to know your children, uh, to get to know them, to know their friends. The, the, anybody, it's just, you just got a parent, got a parent. And I know parents are doing so many good things, but I'm asking parents out there to do a little bit more. And I know that may be a little more of a challenge when there were, were, were separate time, but I want to make parents out there do some more. What's your kind of, when you work with focus groups or even parents, what is kind of your broad advice to them? Just as you said, but also to, to think about their messaging, to think about their modeling, um, and also not to just rely on our intuitions. I hear a lot of parents say things like, there's, well, there's just a lot of debate over what's the best way to talk to your kids about alcohol. There's, I think, a myth that in Europe there's less issues with drugs and alcohol because it's introduced younger and it's not a big deal. And, and so I think sometimes in America we think, yeah, we maybe need to let our kids drink a little bit here and there as they're growing up to sort of demystify it. But now the new research shows that that's not true at all. And there's complications with comparing those cultures anyway because uh, there's, just off the top of my head, they probably drive less in Europe. So you're going to have less auto fatalities related to alcohol. That doesn't mean that there's less addiction, per se, or less depression and so on. Uh, but the, the new research is showing that when you, when you follow families in longitudinal studies, and you compare health outcomes for those that had the sort of lax rules with having a little bit, but in a controlled way, they don't turn out better than those that have just zero tolerance. And that may be hard for some parents thinking, well, you know, 
then aren't they just going to rebel? And the research doesn't support that. But that's not intuitive. Gotcha. So I, that's one of my, my main points for parents is like what our gut feeling may be on some of these, uh, uh, some of these ideas about how to parent. They might just be wrong, and it's okay to have that uh, you know, disparity, but be open to that. Yes. Because there's new wisdom, and we don't need to just rely on our, our folk wisdom. I know we talk a lot about from, yeah, exactly. I love that the, the folk wisdom, you know, what's been passed down from the previous generation to you and that's going to influence your style of how to parent uh, and, and impart that to your child. Uh, we want it to be as, as seamless as possible. Sometimes it's just not as seamless. Uh, but I think it talks about the, the fact that we are still imperfect as people and we try to live in a society that, that wants perfection to the max. And I feel like until we get out of our way sometimes and realize that we are imperfect, then we can actually start really making some change. Um, when you try to fight for perfection all the time, it only just wears you down, and you're only set up for, for frustration and failure. So I want to get into this. We, I want to get into Miss vs. Facts. This has been an awesome conversation, <laughs> but you know every week on 2 Dr. G, I've got to do Miss vs. Facts. So uh, I might actually participate this week. This is just me and you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you are the expert, but I'm going to try to go ahead and throw <laughs> something out there <laughs> myself. Uh, I'm just so curious. I'm, I'm going to give Todd the, the very hard ones, and I'm going to do the very easy ones because of my show. That's how I get down. So it's all good. So we're going to do Mr. Respects that we do each week. We're all about building trust and delivering truth. We want to set the record straight when it comes to underage drinking. So here it is. Did we forget about teen alcohol use? Myths versus facts. I'm going to say a statement. And then a Todd mostly will say myth or fact, and I might jump in a little bit. So here we go. And then after we say myth or fact, you give us a little uh, quickie on why is it a myth or a fact. Here we go. First statement. Myth or fact. As adolescents get older, they tend to drink less. That's a myth. Please explain. Uh, the, the research shows that it increases across like 12 to 20. It goes, like I said, from about 1% usage just before high school up to 20, 30% of teens at the end of high school I have had a drink at least at least one drink in the last month all right well thank you here we go and it's not too different between uh, boys and girls okay yeah oh yes I've seen that data it's very equal it's pretty equal. Uh, very equal boys and yeah. girls so we don't think a lot of times maybe our society we think about more boys doing it but yes girls are definitely doing it and binge drinking increases across age yeah and the amount of binge drinking I have the statistic here it's very important we didn't touch too much based on binge drinking we'll get back to Mr. Feck in a second but binge drinking is so common uh, uh, actually, the number was 11%. Sorry, I take it wrong. Uh, 4.3 million young people reported binge drinking at least once in the past month. Uh, so, and then almost a million people, young people, reported binge drinking more on five or more days over the past month. So, we have some, some very broad issues that are very problematic issues um, that we have to continue to deal with. So, here's the next statement myth versus facts. I'm going to give this one to Todd, too. Here you go. I, know, I like this one. Here you go. Myth or fact? More adolescents use alcohol than cigarettes or marijuana. I probably could have taken that one. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I agree that the numbers are pervasive, and you said at the beginning mm. uh, that, um, that, that youth uh, account for a, amount, a greater amount of alcohol consumption in this country as well, too. Mm. And you said uh, mm. about 20% or so of youth, uh, 12, 20 and under, uh, 12 to 20 youths have reported alcohol use of at least on one, one, one occasion in the last month. Yeah, and I would say about 60% of all 18-year-olds have used it. 
alcohol at that time. All right, thank you. Mm -hmm. Here's a statement, myth or fact. I'm going to take this one. It is quite hard, here's the easy one. It is quite hard for youth to access alcohol. That is a myth. Uh, and I'm going to call that a triple <laughs> myth. It ones. is quite easy. I gave the story about going to my first teenage party as a freshman. There was alcohol there. And so alcohol is pervasive. It's very easy for youth to access alcohol. We need to talk about better ways to curb access if we're going to impart more change. Here we go. Myth or fact. I like this one for Todd. Here we go. There are no warning signs that may indicate underage drinking. Well, I would say that's largely a myth. Please explain. There's changes in behavior, there can be changes in mood, changes in academic performance, changes in the social dynamics. All right, thank you very much. Here we go. I like this one. Here's a statement. I'll take this one. The National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism and the American Academy of Pediatrics both recommend that all youth be regularly screened for alcohol use. The answer is yes, both those organizations do recommend screening. The challenge for us, and me certainly as a clinician, but I challenge it for all clinicians out there, is to have these discussions on a more frequent basis. You know, you need to have more multiple touch points. If you're gonna see somebody once a year, please invest in that time to talk about these things. And I always say when it comes to medical care, everything's fair game in my office. Uh, as, as providers, we need to put down our own insecurities and actually open up and talk about real issues. So prove me wrong if you're drinking, prove me wrong if you're having sex, prove me wrong. You know, we have to have those kind of conversations. Sometimes I think our own insecurities may get in the way or we may judge somebody that they, uh, they don't do it. So I don't think that, that they'll do it uh, because they don't look like they do it and therefore I'm not gonna ask the question. So we have to get rid of our own insecurities and scream. Here's a, here's a statement, Todd. I like this one. Professional treatment options for young people who drink are underutilized, myth or fact. I would say they're underutilized. Okay, please explain a little bit more. Well, part of it's stigma. Okay. And so it's hard for parents to maybe face the reality that there's a problem for their teen. Uh, sometimes there's some cultural elements that some cultural barriers. Sometimes there's religious barriers. You know, and uh, I think that that limits the amount of people who can get the help that they need. Wonderful. Well, thank you. And again, as Todd said, we have to create more opportunities and break down some of these barriers and more access as well, too. I like this one. We'll do a couple more of these. I'm going to do this one. Uh, but this is actually, no, actually, I'm going to give this one to Todd. I like this one. Okay. Here's a statement. Quote, all the other kids drink alcohol. I need to drink to fit in. End quote. Well, that's certainly a, a, a realistic feeling. It's not true that all the other kids drink alcohol. It's not true that um, as many people drink alcohol in society as we think. Because this actually comes up a lot with adults in treatment. They'll say, well, if I'm going to be sober, how am I going to have any kind of life sober? Everyone drinks. It's not true. I, I want to say something like 34% of adults do not use any substances at all. Not even like New wow. Year's or a wedding. Or, not at all. Wow. And th that would, that's hard for uh, a lot of people to believe in treatment, and, and it's hard for students, too, because sometimes that is the entire social circle, and that is the connection is using, and it's a way in to socialization. Wonderful. We'll do one more. I'm going to give this one to you as well, too. Here we go, Todd. Here's a statement. Last statement on Miss versus Facts. Love this. Uh, a young person's brain and body are still growing. Drinking alcohol can cause learning problems or lead to adult Alcoholism, myth or fact? That's a, that's a fact. The brain's still developing. But here's something that, that may not easily be realized, that not only is the brain still developing, but identity is developing. Okay? And that's what's going on through this stage of life. And the reason why we need to be there to do the screening and be supportive is we don't want identities to build around 
drinking or using. We don't want the identity to form around that's part of who I am because then it's really hard to undo that as the brain finishes its development. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Todd. So there you guys go, Mr. Specs. So we've got about five minutes left. This okay. has been an awesome discussion. I can't believe the time has gone by so fast. I feel like I, Todd and I can talk forever about this topic and really still have room to continue to keep this conversation going. But I want to break it down uh, at the end. So uh, what I want to do, just this great show, and I want to just say something real quick. Make sure you share the show. The most important thing that we can do today is not... Uh, 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 it, it, it's really, we need to share it. We don't want to let this conversation die right now. The important thing is to continue to create this open avenue of discussion and, and really have the dialogue going on and, not, and just not having any barriers or preconceived notions about it. We have to have honest talk and real talk, and that's what Todd and I have been mm -hmm. trying to do today. So Todd, we've got about five minutes left. Yeah. Um, break it on down for us. Give us some take-home points out there. You know, people are listening to our show, parents, uh, coaches, teachers, Let's talk about some of like the opportunity that's at hand, the, the action plan, like the, the call to action. What would you tell people out there to be successful in combating the challenges of today's theme? Sure. I think uh, one helpful tip would be find ways to create meaningful conversations about life. Create safe spaces for you to have conversations with your kids where they know they can they can express themselves and there's not going to be consequences. Now, of course, if this is an emergency, that's different. But they need to know that there's a non-judgment zone. So when you're approaching these conversations, you're not trying to get control. You're trying to build a relationship and you're trying to build warmth. Warmth was one of the main factors with parents being able to have more positive influence over their children and delaying their initiation into into using. So, so that would be a big one. I, I also think, we, we didn't get to it, we've talked about it before, but I think mindfulness is important and emotional intelligence for young people because we don't learn enough about how to deal with our feelings. And so we get really good in a lot of different ways. They're not always as severe as alcohol. We get really good at suppressing what we're feeling or distracting ourselves from feeling. Now mindfulness isn't about being, feeling better, but it's about being better at feeling. And when you can learn just the art of feeling as a human being, that we will be sad, and that's okay. That there will be times when we feel joyful, there will be times when we're afraid and we're worried. And guiding young people through those feelings, and then showing them through, through mindfulness, you can really center yourself in the present moment. And sometimes, I, I can remember these experiences as a young person too, with anxiety or with drinking alcohol, that you feel like your back is against the wall with stress. We didn't get too much into stress, but... When you feel that, well, then you resort to a lot of different things that might be maladaptive. But through mindfulness and introspection, you learn, wow, there's still a whole lot of places I can go internally and pay attention to to take care of myself. So when I offer that to young people and to families, it seems to take root with them, especially for those who are using to cope with feelings. Because I can, I can explain to them that, look, there's nothing wrong with wanting to get high because you want to transcend your pain or the, the complications in your family or at school. But there are other ways to be centered in the present moment and get the relief of not being so burdened by the past and so worried about the future. And mindfulness and meditation can help with that. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Todd. It's been a pleasure having you on my show again. My final thoughts are this. Uh, you know, remember that we all feel the effects that can result from this problem of underage drinking. Underage drinking is not just a family concern, right. it's a nationwide concern. You know, I want people to take the opportunity today 
to really reflect on the opportunities that actually lie ahead. We have to be comfortable having some conversations that may feel uncomfortable. Uh, at the end of the day, we want you out there, parents, grandparents, coaches, teachers, to feel comfortable having these kind of conversations, not only with your own children or your grandchildren, but those that you're tasked to take care for. You know, there's always an opportunity for improvement, and we need to make sure that we're comfortable with ourselves to have these conversations on a much broader level. So I want to thank my guests today, Todd Fink. Thank you. Awesome. Todd has been awesome. Todd, certified alcohol and drug counselor at Linden Oaks Behavioral Health. He's an artist, speaker. I'm going to read you his, his website information again. Check him out, www.eehealth.org. Also check him out at www.michaeltoddfink.com. Also check him out at www.thegivingtreeband.com. You've been listening and watching live on Facebook and intellectualradio.com. This episode is written by Mark D. Gomez, MD, and Tiffany E.R. Gomez. Producer is Tiffany E.R. Gomez. Music is by the wonderful Mr. Havis. Copyright 2020 by MDG Wellness LLC. All rights reserved. Stay tuned for my next show in two weeks. It's entitled Sawing Logs, that snoring show. Remember, if you enjoyed today's show, please be sure to like and share it on social media. We have to take action now. It's now or never. Check me out on my website, www.drmarkgomez.com. I'll catch you guys later in two weeks. Peace. Peace.